Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. Delighted to be here. I am your host. Welcome into another episode of the Ask Noah Show. So if you are with us this weekend, a huge thanks to everyone that showed up for Southeast Linux Fest, the virtual event. It was a massive success. As you would expect, we had a ton of community involvement. We had the opportunity to hang out. Matrix worked like a champ. You may recall that last year, just being a year out of beta, we were a little nervous to use Matrix to host the event. And so we instead used some alternative software. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you're trying to do a conference or try to have audio video participants, we had way less problems with Matrix this year than we did last year. Now, part of that is because Jitsi itself is just amazing. But the other part of that is that Matrix and Jitsi work together to make some really fantastic software. We're going to talk more about that as the show rolls on. I want to open up tonight talking about uh, Freenode because there is a lot of buzz on the internet with Freenode. So far, I've kind of stayed out of it because it wasn't really relevant to, I didn't think, uh, to the show and there wasn't a lot of great information. But today, the situation has changed quite a bit. Essentially, Freenode was... um, Changed. There was a change in leadership, uh, putting it that way. And as part of that change in leadership, um, there were some concerns. And so people started to move to an alternative network, Libera. And in response to that, the Freenode staff began to speak up and say, hey, no, you can't come into our server and go into our channels and tell people to go to a competing network. You can't do that. Well, it turned out Libera was actually run by the by the original team that was working at Freenode. And when the change in leadership happened, they decided that we're going to go over here and we're going to function over here. And many prominent projects began to make that move. And as that progressed, their response was to start kicking people out and banning channels. Well, last night or somewhere within the last 24 hours, um, apparently they decided to change the software that Freenode ran on instead of running on IRCD uh, called Dancer. They switched uh, to, uh, excuse me, IRCD7. The IRCD was, uh, Dancer was the, uh, was the original one back in like 2005. Um, but then it was replaced with IRCD-7. Uh, and that's what's been running since January of 2010. Well, <laughs> they've, they've recently changed to Athema IRC services. Uh, and so effectively what has happened is there are now two free nodes. One is the old free node network and one is the new free node network. And as a consequence of that, all of the channels, to include the one that we were using for Ask Noah, is just gone. And if so if you've got a username, that, that's just gone. I'm going to bring in our interactive matrix room there. There's quite a full crowd in there. How are you doing, guys, tonight? Good. Very sad. So, Neil, uh, you know, you specifically, I would think that you'd have thoughts on this. Um, what do you think about Freenode essentially? I mean, they caused an intentional net split on their own platform. And now and, 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 and now they've shut everything down. So, so I, my confusion is this. 
if the goal all along was to just blow it all up and start over with a new IRC network, why get so concerned about people leaving to begin with? They were going to kick them all off anyway. So, so I think this, it took some finagling and figuring this out, but as it seems that uh, the guy who is in charge of Freenode Limited, um, Andrew Lee, uh, apparently has a particularly deep attachment to IRC and Freenode in particular. And so wanted to preserve Freenode as it existed when he started using Freenode um, a decade or so ago. And when he started taking over to try to like force it back into what he thought Freenode was like, um, basically, the other Freenode staffers at the time, to- uh, you know, the ones that became the Libera Chat founders and staffers, basically said, "This is no bueno. You can't really do this." And then they basically quit in protest. Um, since then, he basically continued um, to try to impose his uh, vision of this, and he tried to get other staff, other people, to become staffers for this. And it, it, it's basically like that whole grasping at quicksand kind of thing. Um, I think there's a, uh, an article, I'll, I'll try to find it and throw it over to you to add to the show notes about, about this. But like, it, it basically boils down to someone trying to capture something from his um, more troubled childhood or whatever, the refuge from that, and trying to preserve it as it was rather than as it is, or whether he perceived it to be. And and then another aspect of this was um, the Freenode staffers that became the Libera Chat staffers were actually um, working on an upgrade to the to the infrastructure and the technology. Um, when the transfer of control happened to the Freenode server, the master Freenode server that runs the channel services and identity services. Um, uh, when the transfer control happened, uh, they lost access to that server. Uh, and that was where that was basically where the staging of the new software was going to go. And that one, unlike what happened now, was going to be an in-place upgrade with a total data migration and all those sorts of things. Hmm. Um, that wound up obviously not happening. And now IRCD7 and A-Theme, which, is the, which was the stack of old Freenode, uh, is being replaced with Inspire IRCD forked. Because the original, the main Inspire IRC developers don't want anything to do with new Freenode. So it's, that's been forked for them. And they're using the Anope uh, Identity Services solution, also forked, because those developers don't want to work with them either. And so that in this honestly sad quest um, to preserve a Freenode that may not have ever existed, uh, Freenode has managed to burn every single bridge they had in the IRC community. And I saw a post today that said active users on Freenode as of today are like 1.5 thousand. Yeah. No. So to put it, that in it, perspective it, for you, there's more people in the Geek Lab than there is on the entire Freenode network. Right. Uh, and I'm incredibly sad about the whole thing because I registered my own Freenode account when I started contributing to Fedora almost 15 years ago. Uh, and my account is so old 
that it predates most of the enhancements that have happened to the free node network to prevent anti-spam and things like that. So my account had a lot of legacy bits and stuff. And I dropped it last night. I deleted my account on Freenode last night when I still had the opportunity to do so because I was afraid of what might happen to the user database um, if I didn't before the servers were shut down and archived. Well, it's a good thing uh, you did because you would have lost the opportunity to do so after last night. Right. I did it. Uh, I did it like all near close to midnight last night. And I was just, as I was doing it, I was just like overcome with, uh, kind of a special kind of despair. I don't I don't really know how to describe it. But I I deleted my account last night and I, I just I just don't know how to process this anymore. Well, uh you know, uh, all good things come to an end, I guess. So, we'll leave it there. Um so I want to get to the feedback segment this hour. Uh first Jordan writes in and says, "Hi Noah, sometimes I work with my Ubuntu laptop in place with two Wi-Fi networks, one that has access to the internet and one that has access to internal services but no internet access. Sometimes I'm on the edge of the signal range for those networks and the connection is momentarily disrupted. Network manager will switch to to the network with the stronger signal. How can I tell Linux that I want to connect to a specific network right now regardless of the signal strength? I don't want to forget the network I'm not using now because I might need it in 20 minutes and I don't want to have to type the password again. I'm open to new solutions at the desktop environment level, network manager level, or even switching to network manager alternatives if that would help. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, so the the answer there is something called RSSI. And essentially, that is what is making the determination of which access point to associate to. So there's a couple of different ways you can do that. Um, I'm not sure the exact steps on how to do it in Linux. We typically do that at the access point level on the network. And so we'll say, hey, when you get down to this minimum RSSI, at this point, we want you to switch to over to another network. So if you were a client of ours and we managed your network and you came to us with that problem, that's how we would go about solving it. We'd log into the access points and say, okay, we're going to let those access points be much more tolerable of your client and only force you to switch to hand you off to another access point um, at this point or you know, when, when this thing happens. Um, and so uh, you could look, I, I asked it, uh, a while back if there was some easy way to implement that inside of Linux. I didn't get a, a good answer, but as always with the show, somebody in the community probably knows. Thanks for writing in. Luke writes in and says, hi, Noah. Thank you so much for the show. I'm rather novice at Linux and I enjoy learning something new every week. A suggestion for the listener last week was asking about manufacturing software. Odoo has apps for managing manufacturing, tracking inventory, and maintenance, and plenty more. I'm also starting a business in fabrication and manufacturing and have a question regarding software. Is running software such as Odoo or NextCloud on DigitalOcean any more private or secure than using a cloud provider such as an accounting software or cloud storage? Doesn't the hosting company have just as much access to all of your data? Also, do you have a suggestion for a small business accounting software, cloud or local? Thanks, Luke. Um, so there was a while back an open source project. Um, actually, I'm not sure if it's open source as much as it was just code available, but it was called Beanbooks, and it was actually put out by System76. And the code's still available and up on uh, GitHub, but it's eight months or it's eight years old. Uh, and so I, I don't think it's an actively supported project. I don't think it's something that they're actively working on anymore. 
But I can tell you that when we were on Beans Books, we thoroughly enjoyed it. It was absolutely fantastic. And so I might invite you to check that out. As far as uh, which, is it any more private to run it on a VPS? Well, anytime you have control of the server, your data is more private. And that includes a VPS. Remember, DigitalOcean has access to the host. They... Uh, they, they would have, it's not that they don't have access to the VMs running within the host, but that's at least more under your control. So for example, you could, uh, create an encrypted drive on your virtual, uh, on your VPS and you could store all of your data there. Uh, and so in the event that, in the event that the VPS is ever rebooted, the data becomes encrypted and locked and is unable to access those kinds of things. Right. Um, so the, so there's, there's, there's that, but then the other side of it is it, when you when you're going to a true cloud provider, like let's say uh, you go with QuickBooks, for example, Intuit has all of every single dot of your data. The, every number is a is a is a data point inside of their table. Whereas with the VPS, it's somewhat obfuscated. You're running Nextcloud on top of that. You're running Odoo on top of that, and so somebody would have to actively target you and go in there. Now, is it more secure if you have access to your own physical metal? Absolutely. Is it more secure yet if you have access to your own physical metal and then you containerize, and so uh, the, the 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 metal itself is just running the operating system, and inside of the container, that's where all your data is. Even better. Um, but yes, there's absolutely an advantage in running in something like DigitalOcean as opposed to running uh, on, on your own thing. And, and the other part I would say there is y- you, have to, you have to balance security, usability um, with each other because so we could go to the data center and we could go get a Dell R540 and we could virtualize it and we could put VMs on top of it and we could set it up to do the things that we want to do. But again, if you're looking at, if you're worried about the threat model of DigitalOcean interfering, well, do you trust your data center entirely? Do you trust everybody that your data center would necessarily give access to or could give access to? Because physical possession is everything. If I can physically touch a machine, it's just a matter of time before I can get into it, right? Um, And so those, if you're going to ask those questions about DigitalOcean, you should probably ask those questions about your data center. So then you say, okay, Noah, well, I'll just put it in my house. Okay, then how are you going to maintain the same level of uptime? Are you going to get three or four different redundant ISPs into your house? Are you going to get a bunch of uh, redundant power and preferably generators that are going to run in power? If not, you're probably, you're probably trying to solve a threat vector that isn't, isn't all that large for you specifically at the expense of the reliability that you'd get from being in a data center. In the case of DigitalOcean, the expense and, and the, the unreliability that you would get um, from offloading it to a company that does that professionally. So I would invite you to do that. Our next guest is Matthew Hodgson, the technical co-founder of Matrix.org. Now, we've talked about Matrix on this program before. It's one of my favorite open source platforms. So I'm excited to have you back on the program, Matthew. I want to start here. One of the things that is most exciting to me about Matrix, about Element, and about EMS is the strategy that you used to get this product to market. There are other open source messengers out there. There are other platforms used for communication. But what you've done differently with Matrix that, in my opinion, has led to a lot of success with Matrix is in addition to targeting the geeks and in addition to writing the spec and saying, 
here's what we want the software to do. Now here's a first taste with Synapse, an element of what you can do, or actually back in the day, Riot. Here's what you can do with it. You also went into enterprises. You went to schools. You went to universities. You went to governments and said, hey, are you looking for a decentralized, open source, encrypted chat communication platform? If so, here is the answer. Oh, by the way, we'll handle everything for you. We'll just set it up. Can you talk a little bit about what led you down that path to using that strategy and how well it's working for you? Well, that's um, kind of the billion dollar question, I guess, in terms of the overall strategy of how to get Matrix um, out there. I mean, uh, I'm glad uh, you feel that it's successful. I mean, from my perspective, it's very much a work in progress still. And um, I kind of often sort of stay up late at night, failing to sleep, realizing that we've been doing Matrix for seven years now, since 2014, which is a pretty long time in technology. That's like two ice ages in the real world, as it were. And um, probably the only thing that... um, I can use to justify this is that if you look at, say, the uptake of email in the early days of, say, the 80s, like Vint Cerf spent literally 10 years between 1980 and 1990 going around all the various different fragmented email providers, be they SprintNet or AT&T Net or CompuServe or FidoNet or any of these other systems and saying, hey, guys, wouldn't it be nice if we actually all spoke the same protocol and then we might have some kind of internet and some kind of email system that wasn't just siloed into all of these different things. And if it took him 10 years to do that, admittedly, it was obviously a different age, then perhaps it's not so bad that it's taking us some um, seven years plus to do the same with Matrix. But to actually answer your question, the um, rationale behind Matrix was, first of all, very inspired with IRC. So uh, I've been running an IRC network since 99 or 98 or so, which is still alive and out there and used to be relatively large, albeit somewhat niche um, in the Tolkien space, because that's how cool I am. Um, And also when the team who created Matrix started working together, which was actually in about 2003, so we've been together for almost 20 years now in terms of the core 10, 13 people or whatever who um, came up with Matrix, um, everything we did was on IRC. And at the time, in like 2003, 4, 5 or whatever, that was a little bit unusual in a kind of startup context that you would have everything aggressively orchestrated via IRC. And the infrastructure that we had back then actually was a lot more sophisticated in many ways than Matrix. We had all of our infrastructure directly controlled via IRC. Nowadays, you would call it chat ops. But we had this bot written in um, Java, which had a class hot loader um, structure to it so that you could dynamically load in new functionalities, little Java um, serverlessy things at, in real time. And I think we ended up with three, four, five hundred different plugins to this bot. And it was things like restart a data center or deploy an application or restart an application. It was literally the entire chat ops, but also social and technical infrastructure for the company. And even though we weren't remote, we were all based in a little office in West London. You never ever spoke to people in real life. It was a bit freaky. People would come and visit the office and there'd be like 50 people sitting um, in an open plan office with headphones on and it would be deathly silence, like a <laughs> library, but worse, because everybody was frantically chatting on IRC, running the entire thing through that. And at the time we thought, wow, you know, we've got a real advantage over everybody else out there because we know how to use IRC so aggressively and so sort of successfully um, in a kind of business professional context. And it was a bit depressing that IRC itself remained a very geeky thing for like developers and never went mainstream. And meanwhile, 
we kind of got sucked into this weird dystopia where all of the mainstream things like WhatsApp and Slack and Teams and Discord, etc., um, are obviously completely proprietary closed silos. And it was like a world, you know, if that had happened on email, imagine what a disastrous world we would live in. There would be these um, wall gardens of CompuServe and AOL and all these other things. You basically wouldn't have the internet as you know it. And it would be completely fragmented just through greed and almost the capitalist economics that came out of the fact that people realized that instant messaging and VoIP is hard to get right. And therefore, it's valuable. And if it had happened 10 years earlier, perhaps it would have become part of the fabric of the internet. But instead, it became this kind of commercial proprietary bolt-on layer on top. And people saw that they could build their startups and sell them to eBay, in the case of Skype, and then Microsoft, in the case of Skype. And you could make some real bucks going and doing these proprietary communication layers. And so why would you ever consider an open source one? So I think things got stuck in general in this weird gap between standards-based stuff like IRC and SIP and XMPP, which tended to be very popular by geeks and were written kind of by geeks and for geeks, but often didn't have a killer app. Like there was never a killer app for XMPP. On IRC, I guess you kind of had Merck, but then Merck hasn't really changed in 30 years at this point. And even then it was pretty geeky on Windows back in the day. On SIP, there, again, there was never a killer app that would um, be usable for um, chat-style use cases. And uh, the people who had the skills to go and build a good open-based thing tended to just get sucked into working for Skype or WhatsApp or whatever, rather than doing it as open source. So we were kind of stuck in this paradox that you had to either go horribly proprietary or a little bit too geeky. I've got another theory on this, which is that you have a really weird um, feedback effect on chat systems, which are open source and open community based, in that by definition, the tool is used to develop the thing. So on Matrix, it's built by people using Matrix, talking about Matrix. And you get a lot of very, very enthusiastic open source contributors turning up. And completely understandably, they want to make the best tool for them. And the reality is that the best tool for a whole bunch of open source enthusiasts like us is not necessarily going to be the best tool for, I don't know, the US government or the government of France or, I don't know, school kids in Germany or the German Health Service is one of the new matrix um, adopters recently. So that has been a real conscious decision from the outset that, first of all, we had to build a killer app. Hopefully Element is sufficient to kill an app that it can basically be an open source flagship that people can install and use, even if they're not geeks. A bit like Netscape was the killer app for the early web, which, let's face it, would have been super geeky if you had been stuck with links and um, Diola and other early web browsers or even Mosaic. And then the guys at Netscape realized, oh, if we put a glossy app on this that anybody can install, then perhaps it might go supernova. And sure enough, it did. Element tries to do the same thing for Matrix. And then uh, we also consciously have tried to build something that, as you said, will work for governments and it will work for businesses and it will work for mainstream users as well as the open source geeks that we are. And frankly, I'm not sure we've done that good a job of it because, um, I don't know, Element, Element being the company that we set up to fund Matrix development, but we have separately the Matrix.org Foundation that's the nonprofit that looks after the standard 
a bit like the W3C. And then you've got Element playing this kind of Netscape style role. But at Element, we got up to 35 employees before we hired anybody who wasn't a developer. And that includes like HR and legal and sales and finance and definitely design and product design. And I think that shows a lot in the stuff that we've put out, that it's been very, very, very developer-led. And even though we consciously went into it trying to build something that would be a mainstream contender to Teams and Slack, I think we went quite far down the rabbit hole, uh, so to speak, of building things which would work um, primarily for people like us rather than your typical Slack or Teams user. But in the last couple of years, we've tried to completely and utterly shift that and we've now got a six-person design team, and we pivoted all of the element development so that it wasn't pure open source development driven, but instead we actually went to the designers and said, hey, look, you're in charge. Whenever we do a new feature, you guys get to define how this thing looks and like do it all in Figma or do it all in um, uh, no, one of the open source um, um, like Inkscape or the new collaborative Inkscape, um, whose name forget totally eludes me, Pen Pen Plot or something like that. Pen Pop, yeah. Um, basically, use a system like that, um, design it visually, and have lots of diagrams to show how it all plugs together. And then that's when the developers take it and when we actually code it up. And rather than previously, it was very much, ah, we need an API and matrix to do this. And oh, now we've got to put a user interface on that API. And before you know it, you've basically just gone and exposed the API as a UI, which is not necessarily the best user experience. So over the last couple of years, hopefully people will have noticed that Element has got increasingly better in terms of its visuals and its usability. And frankly, I don't think it's there yet, but we're tantalizingly close. And over the next six months or so, I'm hoping that we will get to the point that it will be a complete no-brainer to use this rather than Discord or Slack or Teams. And then with the power of open source on our side, there should be absolutely no stopping us because anybody can run this thing. Anybody can run a matrix server and participate in the wider network. And there is no reason why it should not virally just explode at the risk of overusing the word viral in the context of a pandemic, but still yeah, there is nothing stopping it from just go uh, exponentially increasing um, as people go and expand out the network and jump on board. All it needs is that activation energy for the app to spark joy and delight people rather than people look at this and think, hmm, this is kind of halfway between IRC and Slack, but it's not as polished as Slack yet. So sorry for quarter of an hour monologue, but hopefully that answers the question. No, yeah, it absolutely does. So, and one of the things I appreciate about you, Matthew, is that you're, you're a principled person first. And so when we started looking at communication platforms for, for my day job, uh, we sat down and we looked and said, where do we have long-term trust? And the problem with the, uh, with the scenario that you so eloquently uh, pointed out is, yes, there is, there is a, a, a temptation to go create a tool and then sell it to a bigger company. And you can make a lot of money doing that. The problem is there's not a lot of long-term investment in the tool. There's just an investment in the creation of the tool so that you can try to get people on board. And so when you approach this from a principal standards first and look and say, we care about security, we care about longevity, we care about integrity, we care about enabling people to be able to communicate. And, and, and we as a company sat down and said, well, where do, what technology do we think is going to exist 10 years from now or 15 years from now? There's very few remaining communication platforms that are there. It, it, Matrix is certainly one of them. 
interoperability breeds freedom, choice, and flexibility. And so, yes, you have Element, the go-to standard uh, client for Matrix that, that will do the things that you would expect it to do. But it doesn't stop there because you have native clients like Nico and NeoChat. And so if you want that native chat-like experience, you can do that. Um, lightweight clients like Hydrogen. And so if you're trying, we actually built a, a custom web UI um, that we're using for the stream so that people can, as a guest, just show up and start participating in a chat. And then if they decide, hey, we want to stay there, okay, well, now we can walk them through the actual process of creating an account and all of those kinds of things. But but we could do that because of that interoperability. And then you have your traditional chat clients like Ditto Chat and Fluffy Chat, which present the, the you know the matrix communication just like you would see in, in Telegram or, or Signal, for example. Um, and, and I think that attracts a wide range of users. And you, again, I, I want to be careful how I phrase this question, but the timing of of all of this kind of coming to light right before everyone went home and now needs a remote communication platform to do their work and to, and to keep that community. Um, obviously matrix is one of the is, is, is a high contender for that. How has the pandemic affected matrix and what kind of users and, and, and conferences are you seeing coming to you saying, Hey, this is the tool that we needed. Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. I mean, when the pandemic hit, honestly, our reaction was much like everybody else, one of complete panic and um, uh, assumed that it was going to be a disaster. Um, we um, took on, uh, we had the option of taking on some funding at that point from Automatic, um, from WordPress, and we kind of rushed that through as a sort of um, emergency safety net in case we needed it as a business if the world economy crashed. And um, even more embarrassingly, I actually had a kind of inside track on this because a good friend of mine um, runs um, the UK pandemic response um, program called SAGE. And um, I was actually on holiday with her for New Year's Eve. On, and it was literally December the 31st that she started getting um, notifications coming in saying there's something very strange happening in Wuhan. It was like, a, oh, this might be nothing, but this looks really bad. And um, I probably should have forced through things a little more at that point in terms of what impact it might have on um, on Matrix. But instead, I'm an idiot, and I didn't. And we waited until April also to suddenly realize that actually this could be a turning point due to frankly, an entire class of entities who just cannot hand their data to Microsoft and Slack and have it sit there unencrypted. Um, it's just illegal for them, or it's completely unconscionable for them, or there are sort of regulatory or data protection considerations that mean that it just can't happen. And we estimate that about a third of all the companies out there need a way to communicate, but just cannot use Teams or Slack for whatever reason. And we suddenly found them all come to us. Um, in a massive rush in, in April of last year. And it was governments um, who obviously uh, would prefer to run their own infrastructure rather than hand it all over to Silicon Valley or Redmond. Um, it's healthcare, particularly in the context of the pandemic. It's financial services and sort of paranoid high value um, entities, people who are processing trillions of dollars um, who need to just be completely and utterly um, paranoid from a privacy perspective. Um, you've got uh, people who want to be cyber attack resistant. It turns out that there is an entire fleet of industry where they already have teams kind of by default because they're a 100,000 person Microsoft shop. 
And obviously, Microsoft has forced them to all use Teams just by foisting it upon them. But A, they don't trust it. And B, it's not remotely safe from a cyber attack potential. Um, I don't know if you saw the electronic arts hack that was um, publicized a few days ago. Mm -hmm. And um, Vice wrote an amazing article about it on Friday, I think, where they broke down the entire attack. And it turns out that it was a social engineering attack done over Slack. First of all, apparently you can buy Slack access tokens on the dark web from a bulletin board called Genesis. And having got a cookie um, for someone else's access token into um, the EA Slack, then the attacker basically said, oh, I've lost my two-factor auth token. Please can you send me through a temporary TOTP token so that I can start logging into SSH? And then, boom, 780 gigabytes of all the source code of everything that Electronic Arts has ever done waltzes out the door. And it's just such a classic scenario of an unencrypted, non-identity verified, non-cryptographically identified system like Slack being exploited spectacularly. And happily, there are many companies out there who realize how dangerous that is. People who need to consciously be cyber attack um, resilient, um, as opposed to electronic arts, I guess, who aren't exactly running national infrastructure or anything even though it's still a valuable target and it's those guys who have come to us to say look we've already got teams out there anyway but we need to have a secure um, back channel we need to have an outer band kind of environment so that even if we know that an attacker has owned teams or slack we need to have somewhere where the um, information security team can fall back onto which is end-to-end encrypted and has cryptographic identities. So that even if somebody's password has been guessed or compromised or owned, you are going to be able to cryptographically verify that you're talking to the right person. So between those things, that's where the money is coming from to keep matrix development on track. I think we've got 13 different governments now in every continent of the world, apart from Antarctica so far, as far as we know, um, who are now using um, matrix at, at some level and it's education, health, and defense, um, emergency services is a huge one, particularly for interoperability between the different emergency services. And in fact, um, one of our US customers is in Texas um, for the Texas Department of Emergency Management and Department of Public Safety, who use us as their kind of single pane of glass to link together all of the other different systems that they have during emergency management, including pandemic response, in order to coordinate between disparate parties. And in in terms of your earlier point, actually, um, about um, the principledness, um, uh, thank you for (laughs) saying that uh, we're principled. I guess uh, we are. In the most sort of boring way, though, it could just be seen as a trade-off between long-term versus short-term planning, in that all of our competition have always gone for short-term quick flips. And it's just depressing to see Skype and Viber and WhatsApp and all of these systems basically reinventing the same proprietary wheel. They just don't have anything to build on, so they're basically the same app with slightly different UX, slightly different unique selling points, but each one has had to be built entirely from first principles. And the only reason you would do that is if your game plan is to get bought by Microsoft two years later and cash out or bought by Facebook for $19 billion in cash out. And it just feels a bit selfish, a bit greedy and a bit sordid and that it goes and screws over the rest of humanity. Um, Whereas if you look at the web or you look at Linux as these massive 
um, communal open source, open standards based entities. It's this amazing commons, this amazing platform that people can just build on top of. You know, if I want to do a web startup tomorrow, my first step is not to start inventing HTTP from first principles again for my proprietary startup. Instead, I can go and put a computer in my basement, put Linux on it, and I don't need to ask anybody's permission to go and be the next Google. It's the promise of the open web. It's one of the most amazing, um, empowering things the world has ever seen. And we just don't have it for communication. And it's uh, it's an absolute travesty. It's like a Blade Runner-style dystopia where you're just denied the same uh, creativity that you have on the open web. So this is what Matrix attempts to be, the missing communication layer for the open web so that there are a set of building blocks which people can use if they want to rapidly start doing communication stuff. And it doesn't mean getting vendor locked into Twilio or some other proprietary vendor. Instead, it's just part of the fabric of the internet. And this stuff, if we played our cards right, should be around 50 years from now. And it is a good technology choice, just like Unix is still going stronger than ever after 40-odd years, and just like the web is doing pretty well after 30-odd years. So um, this is basically the, the rationale there, and it honestly surprises me that nobody tried to do this before. Um, it's hard, but um, hopefully we'll pull it off this time. The I went and downloaded a, um, a, a series of videos that the French government was using to train their employees on the app that's that's based off of Matrix, uh, uses Matrix underneath. And I remember showing it to my wife and, and sitting her down saying, look at these. And I said, you know, what do you think? She goes, looks like every other training video I've ever seen for a company. And I said, yeah, but underneath the hood, that's speaking Matrix. Is that something that EMS does uh, as, as part of your service? Like people can pay to have those that kind of completely custom app built that will speak uh, that that's element really, but under underneath the hood, but it it's branded and they can tell people, Hey, if you're a staff at this university or student at this university, go get the, you know, my university, ABC uh, community life app and download it from the iOS or play store. Um, is that something that you help them with? Or is that something they do on their own? Yeah. So it's element. We actually make money by um, providing classic software as a service um, via EMS element matrix services which basically relies on, at the risk of going all very businessy, it's basically a total cost of ownership argument, that this stuff is open source, and sure, you can run it yourself. And if you have a whole bunch of competent Linux sysadmins who are willing to do so, that's great. But not many people do. And in general, it would be much cheaper to just pay us a couple of bucks per user per month to host it for you. Now, for that, you typically get a branded web version of Element with your own logo, your own domain name, um, your own sort of color scheme and name and all that sort of thing. So you can get part of the way there. Getting a mobile app is a lot more hassle because we do need to set up a separate mobile pipeline uh, with its own certificates for Apple and Google. And we have to get it through the reviews on the respective app stores. We have to dodge the bullets that say you're not allowed to ship the same app 20 times over with a different name and all this sort of thing. Um, but we can do it and we do do it. So for instance... Um, CHAP, the French government one, or BV Messenger, the um, German military one, are effectively um, mobile pipelines which we provide as element of forks of element with various different levels of customization. But in general, we tend to do it more for, frankly, nation-scale deployments like France or Germany or mm. whoever it might be, because it's significant work in order to keep those things maintained and particularly to 
work around the App Store review process and generally play nice with Apple and Google because we, uh, for better or worse, exist almost entirely at their whim outside of F-Droid, of course, on Android. So um, it's something that we offer. We call it the Platinum offering um, on EMS. And again, if you're probably, if you're either, if you're a big university or bigger, then that's probably the threshold where it starts to economically make sense. Or, of course, you can do it yourself um, because it's all open source. And you can, if you have an iOS and Android and dev team, then there's absolutely not, nothing stopping people from forking Element and uploading it yourself onto the App Store with the right branding. So you kind of drove past this. You said it's easier to pay us a couple of bucks per month to put that into to actual dollars. If you went to sign up for a Slacks account, it's $7 per user per month. And for that, you're on their platform, on their server. If you stop paying the $7 per month, you're done. You lose access to uh, to that plat- the communications platform. You're, you're completely at their whim. If they change the terms of service, uh, you, that's just something that you have to accept. If you don't like a feature or you don't like the way that something is done, uh, that's you don't get any say in that. To, to, to compare that to EMS, EMS starts at $2 per user per month. So you're almost at a third of, of the starting cost of Slack. And the first question I asked EMS before we signed up with them was I said, if down the road I want to take this server and, and I want to maintain it myself, because at the end of the day, we're an IT consulting company, we maintain Linux servers for a bunch of people, right? Like we should be able to do this. Uh, right now, I don't want that hassle. Down the road, can I do that? And that was that was my that was my initial support request. And the response back was, yes, absolutely. Here's how we're going to set up an encrypted chat. And then once you're in an encrypted chat, we'll exchange the key for you. And then you can take your server key. And at any time you want, you just take your server and pick it up and move it somewhere else. By the way, if you need some help with that, let us know because you can pay us to do that for you. Um, so, yes, you can pay the, you, you guys a couple of bucks to do it. But what you're getting for that, the value that you're getting for the money that you spend with EMS is far, far, in my opinion, far, far greater than what you're getting with with competing platforms out there. Now, I, I, something that caught my eye on, on the blog recently that I was excited to talk to you about, um, from the beginning, you've run a public matrix server, matrix.org. And so if somebody wants to get started with Element, they can just download Element in the Google Play Store, Apple iTunes Store, and sign up for a free account at matrix.org, and they can begin participating. And because matrix.org is federated, they can talk to all of the other servers to include the Linux Delta one we're using here for Southeast Linux Fest. But when you get, if you get enough users on any server, you're eventually going to start to hit limitations. And so the, the rationale has been, well, you could go with an EMS plan and then you can get your own dedicated server. And so that's what we did for my company at AltaSpeed Technologies, moved over and it works great. Again, uh, we're on our own server. You guys host it for us and maintain it for us. And it works just like any other soft chat software. But you've introduced something new to the world and that is Element Home. Tell me a little bit about what Element Home is and how it works. Sure. So, I mean, Element Home is basically an easy way to get some people up and running on their own EMS server uh, without the feeling that you're having to sign up for a kind of dedicated um, deployment, a sort of single tenant server. Instead, it's just um, aimed at typical users just sitting on Element on the kind of default matrix.org server. And they went and started using matrix.org because it was the default. They didn't really know what matrix was. They were just trying it out. And then they got hooked. And then one day they think, wow, I wish actually I had some place of my own. Then Element Home literally takes their account and upgrades it and migrates it over to a dedicated place of their own. So under the hood, it is just a normal EMS nickel 
um, server, which is like the five to 10 person server um, sizing that you get on EMS. But um, the onboarding is just completely different in the it is all done within the context of the normal element app. And it's really the normal open source element app that if you look in settings, um, somewhere in it, it's got a little thing saying, by the way, if you want a place of your own, then perhaps you might want to support um, development of matrix and element by going and getting your own home on element, hence element home. So it's just an experiment really in onboarding people into a dedicated place to try to keep the lights on, frankly, for us. and. Um, um, keep um, uh, people paid full-time um, to work on, on Element and Matrix. But um, uh, going back to the portability thing, um, the, there's actually a kind of ulterior backstory here or a sort of a, a whole other level, which is that we really, really want to add full account portability transparently into Matrix. For one thing, we need it for peer-to-peer -peer Matrix. So in peer-to-peer -peer Matrix, you go and run the server inside the client, so you no longer have a dedicated server running on a Linux VPS somewhere. Instead, it's literally built into the Android or the iOS or the web app, um, which is incredibly powerful because it means you don't need internet connectivity anymore to chat. And it just take, it turns the entire ecosystem on its head in that anybody can now suddenly host basically their own conversations. So ironically, it puts EMS out of a job <laughs> in that people, at least by default, will start off um, in the great public peer-to-peer um, sort of best effort network. And um, the thing is, if you have, therefore, a server inside your web browser and a server inside your iPhone and a server inside your Android, and they're all the same logical person, the same account, you effectively have three different matrix accounts and three different servers there, and you need to keep them in sync. And the way to solve that is effectively to solve this problem of account portability. The act of logging in on a tablet would be no different to effectively porting or multi-homing your account between your existing servers and this new server that happens to be sitting on a tablet. And at the same time, this then would give us the ability to transparently move people from between servers or indeed host them on multiple servers. So Element Home also would then become obsolete because it's trivial. You would just say, hey, I've got my account today on matrix.org, and I've also got myself an account on EMS, and I would like at Matthew on matrix.org to be the same as at Matthew on matthew.ems.host or whatever it might happen to be. And I can either split it between both of them, or perhaps I could just migrate from matrix.org to there. So this is why, quite aside from the ethical and um, sort of principles and also GDPR elements of wanting to let people migrate easily between servers and not lock them into EMS or anything. It's also down the line just going to be a core part of the protocol that anybody will be able to migrate from their EMS server to one that they're running themselves or indeed host on multiple things too. And it's probably going to be at least six months before we get that there. But the pressure is really ramping up, particularly as peer-to-peer -peer evolves in terms of wanting to have that capability. And it's a bit like GSM um, lets you port your phone number between networks. It's kind of the same primitive. And it's something that almost nobody else has in the communication space online, I think with the exception of um, one of the diaspora-derived things had smart account portability. But XMPP doesn't, SIP doesn't, um, email doesn't, obviously. Um, so we're quite excited about providing that when we get there. So it would be even worse if we did try to vend a lot of people to EMS, given that uh, down the line, we want to make sure that people can migrate as much as they like.
Question from the chat room. Uh, one software development group we were working with on Skype forever. After that, Microsoft screwed us for the chat client that we used. We moved over to Discord instead of Slack because the other platforms, we could not get an indefinite chat history. Does Matrix support an indefinite chat history? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Matrix is an open standard, and the core primitive you get in that open standard is chat history. Um, so it's unusual in that it's not like email or SMTP or XMPP or uh, in that you're not passing a message from A to B. If you send a message into a matrix chat room, it's not like copying that message to everybody in the room. Instead, the way to think of it is that it is updating your server's copy of the chat history of that room and then replicating that chat history and synchronizing it with all the other servers in that room. And in fact, it's almost identical to Git, if you know how Git works as a decentralized version control system, in that everybody has their own copy of the room or their own copy of their Git repository, their own clone of the Git repository, and they're constantly pushing and pulling commits for source code, go diffs between the different Git repos. Likewise, in Matrix, every time somebody talks, it's equivalent to basically doing a Git push to their repo, which then gets pushed out to all the remote um, repos um, that represent that room. So yeah, long story short, it is conversation history. You can't get rid of the conversation history unless you consciously go and delete it from your server or set up a um, history retention configuration on the room to tell the servers to, by gentleman's agreement, delete it after 100 messages or 100 days or hours or whatever it might happen to be. So, yeah, um, Discord might have the um, selling point of um, infinite history, but on the flip side, it's proprietary, it's unencrypted, um, their data policy lets them mine it to shreds and do whatever they like, basically, with the data that you put into it. Um, whereas in Matrix, um, you can run it yourself. It's end-to-end -end encrypted. If you do host it with us, we're not going to touch the data or the metadata to mine it anyway. Um, so, And you get the infinite history, too. And to be clear, if I'm using encrypted chats, even if I'm paying for EMS hosting because the encryption is happening client side. Even you don't have those encryption keys. They only exist on my machine and the recipient's machine. Absolutely. Tony 661 in the chat room or 1661 in the chat room asks, do I need to get permission to federate? And if so, how do I go about federating for federating, for example, from my server to matrix.org? Nope. It's completely open federation. So a big difference with IRC, where typically today, if I wanted to add my server into Freenode or <laughs> LibreOchat, um, I would need to go and ask the IRC ops there for permission to link in, um, or on Rocket Chat or um, Wicker or other systems. Again, it's only private federation. In Matrix, it is only uh, it is open, just like um, the internet, just like um, the web, and just like email. In fact, the best analogy really is email, that anybody can spin up a mail server, open you know, SMTP ports, and um, set up an MX record optionally, and then start receiving and sending email. Likewise, on Matrix, anybody can just join that network without any, asking any permission. And right now, we've got about 76,000 servers on the network based on looking at all the unique DNS that we've ever seen flying around, um, at least from the viewpoint of matrix.org. And those servers range in size from little Raspberry Pis sitting under people's beds all the way through to massive um, EC2 instances or bare metal instances like Matrix.org, um, which host hundreds of thousands of users. So that's the joy of it. And it's also the hardest bit of it because it means the system and the protocol has to be Byzantine fault tolerant, i.e. you have to handle malicious servers. And whilst for something like email, 
this is relatively easy to reason about, even though obviously you get a lot of spam and you get a lot of um, um, people wall dialing your SMTP MTAs and all that sort of thing, trying to break into them. Um, in Matrix, because it's a high level protocol, you're replicating the chat history between these servers. So you need to make sure that if you have a conversation I don't know, like Matrix HQ has got 20,000 people in it right now, and I think it's got about 2,000 servers participating in it. If one of those servers has been deliberately written to be malicious, so not just buggy, but when somebody has handcrafted their most malicious possible Matrix server, and they start doing things like emitting kicks or bans, or they start doing things claiming that they've got ops or they've got admin privileges, etc., then the entire network um, and protocol has to be resilient to this to make sure that you can't have hijacks and you can't have abuse like that. And back in the early days when we were beta, we got that wrong and we had some real embarrassments off the back of it. But since we um, exited beta in June 2019, the main thing that we, in fact, it must be almost two years to the day that we exited beta, um, the main thing that we got right and focused on was this Byzantine fault tolerant thing. And it turns out that it's a new branch of computer science <laughs> called um, Decentralized Access Controls Without Finality. And there's a university research group in Germany at the University, or sorry, the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, um, who have this um, uh, distributed systems research group who do nothing, or who, who spend a lot of their time writing um, research papers about matrix and how we solve this problem. Because it turns out academically, it's the really, really cool, exciting thing that you can basically have access controls, a bit like POSIX, ACLs, or Unix file system um, configuration in a totally open federation that anybody can get involved in. And yet, um, because we require every time people do an operation that they provide proof as to why they think they are allowed to do that operation, and everybody goes and checks the proof and gets comfortable with the fact that they are actually the admin for this room, and therefore they are allowed to kit this user, um, it basically solves this problem of how you do distributed file slash anything access controls. And now that we've added some um, spaces, which is how you group together rooms in Matrix, and we're just adding in file hierarchies as well into Matrix, basically turning it into a end-to-end um, -end encrypted decentralized file sharing platform or cloud storage platform like Dropbox or whatever, um, the fact that we have these decentralized access controls becomes incredibly exciting because the whole network effectively then becomes a multiplayer decentralized file system, a bit like a decentralized Dropbox, except the things that you're protecting are chat rooms, real-time data streams, as well as the files and other assets which you put inside those chat rooms. So very long, waffly answer, I'm afraid, but um, hopefully gives an idea as to why it's so exciting the matrix is completely open federation absolutely uh, sleuth in the chat room asks what's the plan at the moment for the new voip implementation well good question um so uh, when we first began uh, matrix we really wanted to make sure that people understood it wasn't just for instant messaging it's not just irc you can put any kind of data into it and as it happens before matrix we professionally did voip um stacks for like 15 years um, I mentioned we've been together since 2003, basically from 2003 to 2014 or so. And a bit afterwards, we went and built something that looks and smells a lot like WebRTC. Unfortunately, not open source, but this proprietary VoIP stack. 
And as a result, that stuff is in our DNA. And we went and put a quick VoIP implementation into Matrix on day one back in 2014. The thing is that it was a horrible proof of concept. You can just do one-to-one -one calls in it, and it didn't have any niceness at all. It didn't have timeouts. You couldn't put people on a hold. You couldn't mute them. You couldn't shift between voice and video calls. Um, it didn't have any connectivity to the phone network. It was a very, very basic, oh, look, guys, you can use Matrix to set up VoIP. So in the last six months, we've actually put together a dedicated VoIP team at last four matrix element. And the first thing they did was to completely revisit that stack and actually make it properly carrier grade in the literal sense of the word phone carrier. And um, it was fixing all of those things that I just mentioned. It even has a DTMF dial pad if you're connected through to the PSTN and you want to start using a IVR style service and pressing the buttons on the phone to go and navigate one of those uh, menu systems. So that's the new one-to-one -one VoIP implementation. We also changed the UX to make it look like Jitsi because we use Jitsi by default as the conferencing system. And meanwhile, Jitsi themselves have adopted Matrix's encryption for end-to-end -end encryption within Jitsi in this sort of open source projects hanging out together. I mean, we've known the Jitsi guys for over 10 years now, back from when we were doing VoIP, and we've kind of stayed in touch, and they're really cool, nice people, and we basically work together on this. In the long term, though, it would be nice if Matrix did have native um, video conferencing too. And in fact, we did this back in 2017 for a VR demo where we did full mesh end-to-end -end encrypted video and voice conferencing in VR using WebVR, sitting inside Chrome and Firefox, nightly builds. Um, and you could put on your Vive headset, go into literally into Matrix, into a Star Trek TNG Season 2 holodeck, which I designed myself in 3D Studio and Blender, and then um, went and um, spin up various voice and video conversations with people. And it worked really well. The only catch is that it was a silly proof of concept that we threw together in about a month and then never touched again. So in the coming weeks, I'm hoping that we will finally go back and reopen that sarcophagus and go and um, hook it up into Element and at least have full mesh voice and video conferencing end-to-end -end encrypted that will be probably fine for up to like six, seven, eight people. Um, beyond that, though, you start to... Um, use a lot of bandwidth and you want to switch to what's called a stream forwarding unit like Hangouts or Zoom or Jitsi. And our next stage beyond that will be to figure out if and when we should be replacing Jitsi with a native matrix speaking thing that follows all of the end-to-end -end encryption that we natively have in matrix through and uses matrix for the signaling rather than the slightly ungainly thing where you're basically embedding a completely different system, which actually happens to be implemented in XMPP under the hood, like Jitsi runs on the prosody under the hood. Why not instead have something that was natively talking matrix? But that will probably be later in the year, depending on how urgently we need it. And we also want to start doing a bit more of the VR over matrix stuff too, because particularly in the last month or two, it seems that there's a little frisson of excitement about the metaverse again, and Facebook have been busy creating their horrible proprietary horizon base um, thing called Horizon, a metaverse VR environment that they've been doing. And we always wanted Matrix to be the missing communication layer for the metaverse and for VR and AR on the web as much as for instant messaging. So we need to get a wriggle on and make sure that that stuff gets implemented. 
Um, the chat room asks, it says, wow, that's great. I'd love to be able to register my work extension in Elements so that I can have one communication client. Is this something that would ever be possible in the future? Yes, although you might not like the answer, which is that the VoIP stuff on the receptor matrix that we've implemented ended up being for a customer um, who, uh, shall we say, is not compatible with open source. So this stuff exists, and we're putting it into EMS, but at the moment, at least, it's going to be a proprietary um, thing that people can get if they happen to be using EMS. And part of this is a slightly naughty capitalist maneuver on the basis that if people are interfacing with the PSTN, obviously that stuff costs money. You've got termination costs, you've got origination costs and drop costs, and you've got to rent your phone lines and rent your DDIs and all that sort of thing, or DIDs, I should say. Um, And our attitude is that if you're paying out money to access the phone network in the first place, then perhaps you might want to pay money to get that stuff into Matrix, and therefore it's something that we can provide as a paid SaaS service. Frankly, I'm not particularly comfortable with it. I'd much rather that everything we did was open source, but we've experimented with both um, the Teams bridge, which for precisely the same reason is proprietary on the basis that if you've got enough money to pay Microsoft loads of money for Teams, you might as well funnel some of that money our way to support matrix development and likewise for the PSTN too. So long story short, yes, but only if you are a paying customer on EMS. Um, But also we haven't launched it yet and that might change. And frankly, if we get to the critical um, sort of exponential growth um, event that I mentioned right at the beginning, where Element is so good that it's just flying off the shelves and it's busy replacing Slack and Teams, etc., then it will be much easier for us to say, yeah, we'll give away the SIP gateway as open source for everybody and we'll do the Teams bridge, might as well be open source too. Because in the end, we want the network to grow. We don't want to sabotage it and um, impede it by putting paywalls on things like PSTN or PBX connectivity. But... um, also, if we do keep it as proprietary, the chances are quite high that somebody in the open source world will say, I'm going to do an open source one anyway, <laughs> at which point you, you'll be able to hook your SIP phone into Matrix um, <laughs> regardless. That kind of answer perfectly exemplifies why I say I'm more comfortable with somebody who's a principled person. So even when situation dictates we're going to make these choices, big picture, long term, 15 year plan, we're looking at those choices. And I, I, I like that view. Um any plans to implement SMS or MMS? Um, so the company that we worked for um, before Matrix doing the VoIP stacks was actually uh, an SMS um, aggregator called Open Market um, based in Seattle um, who bought the London outfit that we used to work for. So um, I actually wrote myself the world's first MMS gateway back in 2004 or so, uh, which was an absolute horrific thing in Java that was using um, JNI libraries to talk to a serial port on a bunch of 4U um, bare metal uh, rack mount computers, which had these massive RS232 serial port extension cards in the back so that we could hook up thousands of um, GPRS modems to them made by a company called Wavecom, which you would put a SIM card in and it would sit there and it would go and send and receive MMS based on the phone number on the SIM card. Um, and we were, that was how our MMS gateway worked, um, using 
uh, WAP, which is the horrific old wireless access protocol thing that MMS actually uses to this day under the hood in order to send and receive MMSs. So long story short, we've got an awful lot of experience <laughs> doing SMS and MMS gateway. Okay. And we could um, well hook it up to Matrix. Now, I know that some people have already got a Twilio bridge running. Um, we, uh, a lot of people also run an Android-based client-side bridge, which basically mirrors the contents of the Android Messages app, both SMS and MMS, I think, into Matrix, except it requires that your Android thing is turned on and in reception. But it works relatively well as a hack. Um, I guess an extension of the SIP thing might be that if we start selling that to telcos, we could start actually doing proper SMS and MMS and other SS7 stuff over it. But we've also got to kind of skate to where the puck is going, as it were. And given that Matrix aims to kill off SMS and MMS and frankly kill off the phone network, mm. I'd be a little bit worried about spending too much time <laughs> um, doing interoperability like that. In the end, the best bet is going to be to root via Twilio, assuming that you're happy to chuck Twilio have many cents per message that gets transited. Uh, any any uh, any luck doing group messages, either on your own or through Twilio? Uh, as in group SMS Yes, stuff, yes, or... correct. Does SMS even have group? I thought the to group SMS had to be done as an MMS. That Does might be. Uh, maybe, that? Maybe, that, maybe that is. You would know far more about the telco side than I would. I'm literally having to think back in like 20 odd years now. Um, I know that I was honestly a bit shocked that MMS seems to be live and strong in the US because it's basically completely died in the UK and Europe now, thanks to WhatsApp. And also in the US, I think it was quite late to the game. Mm. But it seems that perhaps the telcos are managing to still push it as a way to generate cash. I mean, I assume it still costs. Or is it included in your minutes or your sort of... Yeah, they, they include it, but I'm, I'm sure to a certain extent they love it because it's a, it's a data mine for them. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, on the metadata side of things, and God, I dread to think what's happening to the data itself. Um, honestly, I suspect that if you had a good SMS or certainly a good MMS bridge, you would be able to do group SMSs too. Um, I don't know off the top of my head whether Twilio exposes that. Um, failing that, though... Honestly, at that point, I'm, I would have hoped that people would be using WhatsApp at the least, uh, which we have a really good bridge to, or even Signal, which we have a great bridge to, mm -hmm. or um, uh, I know even Telegram, or even Matrix, <laughs> and then you don't need a bridge at all, right. rather than use it, uh, giving the telcos all of your data, metadata and money for no good reason. You talked about uh, using some of your clients using a single pane of glass and, and you've mentioned all of these bridges. And I think it's one of the unspoken uh, uh, um, benefits really of the matrix infrastructure is that it can speak to everything. Now you've recently recently rolled out through EMS um, bridging services to Slack and Microsoft teams. Talk about how that allows teams to stay connected inside of a otherwise fractured workforce. Yeah, um, so we've got, I think, Teams and Slack. I think we also have Telegram and possibly Discord as well on EMS now. And in the community, uh, well, we do about seven or eight bridges officially as Element, um, most of which, I think all of which are then donated in turn to the Matrix Foundation. And it's IRC, XMPP, Slack, and uh, a bunch of others. Um, and then the community has jumped on with much enthusiasm and done literally hundreds of other ones, like name a system 
the chances are very, very high that somebody has gone and figured out how to bridge it in. Like I saw people were working on a FaceTime bridge based on the iOS 15 FaceTime stuff that was announced at WWDC um, earlier this week. That's how active the bridge community is. And it's a great way to go and onboard people into Matrix because if, um, let's face it, most companies are on Slack or Teams today and it would be a big leap of faith, even if Element was completely amazing to say, hey, guys, just turn off Slack and jump straight over to Element. Instead, this lets you try before you buy. All the people who care can have a go and they can seamlessly talk through to the people on the Slack side of the bridge Slack side of people won't even see that those people are actually using Matrix because you can do it in what's called a puppeted manner where you effectively have Matrix log into Slack as you and um, it goes and replicates whatever your account can see in Slack through into Matrix and vice versa. And um, we find this a really, really successful way to get people comfortable with what Matrix can do. And as you say, it's a single pane of glass for people on the element side and that they have their Slack users, they might have their Teams users, they have a whole bunch of IRC networks, XMPP folk, whatever it might happen to be, people obviously on lots of different Matrix servers around the place, all in the same interface. And now we have spaces, you can group them into a hierarchy of rooms so you can quickly sort of alt-tab or drill down into this hierarchy to whatever particular community it is. And then at some point, hopefully, corporate IT are going to say, why are we paying eight bucks a month to Slack when we could be just doing two bucks a month to Element for something that's actually a better product? And we have our own data sovereignty and control over and it's encrypted and we can have our own DNS on it and we can host it in whatever data center we want because one of the nice things you get on EMS is the ability to select at least which AWS zone you're operating within. Um, and I think, um, yeah, we're, uh, the only thing stopping that from happening is Element just having that snidget more polish that would make it a no-brainer for people to move over. And in some places, uh, I don't know, as a random example, it turns out that NATO has um, standardized XMPP as the way to communicate between NATO countries. And this thing is like written in uh, stone tablets and it's been translated into 50 different languages and it's got its official STANAG designation, which is the NATO standards body. And that is not going to go away anytime in the next 20 years. So if you ever wanted to talk to a NATO country for that kind of military alliance stuff, you're going to have to figure out how to bridge free to XMPP. So the good news is that we have an excellent XMPP bridge called Bifrost, which has sort of been built with these sort of use cases in uh, mind. And so if you have an established ecosystem like that, which is well and truly committed to a different technology, doesn't really matter to us. We're just going to bridge into it on Matrix and people can use the best tool for the job and use the environment they like the most. And if they happen to be in love with JChat, which is the official NATO XMPP client, they can use that. If they want to use Element or their local branded Element fork, they can use that too. So much the better. In the end, we're pragmatists. We're not trying to get the entire world natively on Matrix at all. We'd be much happier in some ways if we just had really good bridges for all the other things. And Matrix just ends up being the lowest common denominator glue or the highest common denominator glue, which goes and links everybody together. So at least people can talk to one another rather than being cut and stuck up into the various different silos. Sleuth in the chat room asks, um, when will Dendrite be ready and how do alternative Matrix servers fit into the future of Matrix? Uh, 
Oh, the eternal question. So, <laughs> when are, are we Synapse yet? Yeah, how are we Synapse yet? So, Synapse was never meant to be a real server. It was the original prototype written by three different people, happened to be in Python, and we uh, one guy did the federation bit, another guy did the client server bit, another guy did the kind of glue in the middle, and we put all three bits of it together and said, oh, this thing looks like it might even work. We rushed it out the door to basically do it as a proof of concept, and then it got successful within like a week of us releasing it, even though it's horrible and it's a memory hog and it being a Frankenstein of three different code bases all glued together. And here we are seven years later, having basically been obligated to put a lot of effort into polishing that and making it production ready. Like when the French government adopted Matrix across the entire state, so that's five and a half million public sector employees across 16 ministries, and they deployed 65 synapses across lots of different data centers, there was no choice. So, you know, we, we were obviously going to have to double down on synapse and make it fit for purpose. Now, the disadvantage on synapse at the time was that it was monolithic, and just one great big um, code base, uh, and it suffered from the Python global in- global interpreter lock, such that you can only have one thread running at a time, so you're limited to one CPU or one core um, of processing, as well as a whole bunch of other limitations. As the years have gone by, we've actually fixed all of that. So the matrix.org server has about 100,000 active users or concurrent users at any given point, and it's spread over about 30 or 40 cores um, to support that. And most performance in the past, before we fixed it, was horrible. Nowadays, it's actually pretty good. So we did that in part by stealing from Dendrite, which is our Go next-gen server that we began at first hoping we would be able to jump over to it as a next-gen server. But frankly, Matrix got too successful too soon, and we had no choice than to avoid splitting the dev team down the middle and having half the people doing Synapse and half the people doing Dendrite. And poor Dendrite basically got um, uh, second shrift um, whilst everybody focused on making Synapse actually fit for purpose. More recently, in the last year or so, we've got a dedicated Dendrite team again. And what we've been doing with Dendrite instead, though, is to basically use it as a um, test jig, an experimental environment for all of our exciting new stuff. So when we added threading to Matrix um, about six months ago, it happened on Dendrite. When we've done low bandwidth in the last few weeks, it happens on Dendrite. Peer-to-peer, Dendrite. Um, Freeform data structures hopefully coming soon. Again, it's going to be Dendrite. Sync v3, really exciting stuff. Entire new model of how you sync data in Matrix, which is shamelessly inspired by Discord in terms of hopefully getting our performance up to Discord-style levels of snappiness and whiteness. Again, it's all happening on Dendrite. And because basically Synapse has become the uh, Apache equivalent of the um, Matrix ecosystem. It's a bit slow, but everybody knows how to do it. It's around there everywhere. Whereas Dendrite is feeling more like the experimental Nginx or next generation thing, but it hasn't quite come of age. And meanwhile, it's where you experiment with HTTP2 or HTTP3 and that sort of thing, because it's so much easier and more fun to hack on. So to actually answer the question, God knows, really. Um, Right now, Synapse is doing what it needs to do quite well, and Dendrite's doing what it needs to do, but it's very much beta. However, the second that we want peer-to-peer matrix to work actually reliably, 
or we start playing around with, say, the low bandwidth stuff or the sync v3 stuff in the wild, and we don't, and we decide not to backport that to Synapse, then kind of by definition, Dendrite will need to be at the level of parity with Synapse that people can step up and using it, use it. So that uh, could be months. It's probably months, but n months where n is greater than three and less than thirty, let's say. <laughs> Um, and it also depends on how successful Matrix is, because if EMS explodes and Element explodes, and we actually get more cash coming in, we can hire more people to work on Dendrite full-time, rather than relying on um, GSOC students and random contributors who kind of come and go, um, depending on the um, time of day. And then to answer the other half of the question, you've got um, two other production-capable servers out there, not production-ready, but you can run them on the live network. One is Conduit, which is written in Rust and is really exciting. It's coming along really well. It's entirely community-written. I don't think any element people have committed anything to it. So it's a great validation that Matrix as a protocol can be implemented by completely independent folks. It's got a very different model to Dendrite and Synapse. So while Synapse is monolithic that has grown out to support workers, Dendrite has always been um, polylithic, uh, multi uh, microservice-oriented architecture. And some people would say the Dendrite probably has too many microservices. There's like 20 of them, and they're all glued together by Kafka or, in future, Nats. Whereas, um, interestingly, Conduit did the total opposite and said, well, it's going to be a monolith, and it's going to be tiny, and it's going to be really fast. So think of um, Conduit a bit like SQLite, something that looks at first to be tiny and fast and good for small things, but then it turns out that actually SQLite is pretty good and you can use it for like 100 gigabyte databases if you're feeling particularly masochistic. And um, it's written in Rust, supports multiple cores, um, uh, uses SLED as a embedded database. So it's kind of interesting design choice. that It won't work with external databases like Postgres, et cetera, because it has its own kind of rocks DB, level DB style, key value store internally, which it uses to go super fast. Um, it's pretty immature, but it federates. I chat to the lead developer in the end-to-end encrypted room, and he's on Conduit, and I'm on Synapse. So it's at that level of um, interoperability. And then finally, you've got Construct, which is a C++ code base, a fork of the Charybdis IRC daemon, um, which honestly, I've never got working. And I know that some people have. It's had a bit of a complicated history. Um, but it was also the, I think the it was basically the second server other than Synapse to be fairly comprehensively federating usefully with the rest of the matrix network. So I'd say this is a pretty healthy position to be in, that you've got four different servers flying around, two are element, two aren't, um, and they've all got completely different characteristics and flavors, and between them keep us as the matrix spec core team honest in terms of providing an open standard that everybody can implement against. You referenced MSC 3079, the low bandwidth stuff. Can you talk a little bit about what COAP and CBOR are and, and how they different from um, HTTP and JSON? Uh, sure. Um, so, yeah, the main novelty of low bandwidth matrix is that we swap out HTTPS and JSON for COAP and CBOR. So CoAP is the constrained application protocol, and it's, um, it's actually almost the same age as Matrix. It's seven years old. It's RFC 7252. I think it was mainly written by Hewlett-Packard and Cisco, and it is one of the standard IoT protocols that if you get a Philips light bulb, say, and you want to change the color or you want to turn it on and off, 
um, via IoT, the chances are high that it will be via CoAP. And CoAP is a UDP protocol. And you typically have one packet per request and one packet per response. Otherwise, it looks quite a lot like HTTP, with the exception that servers can execute commands on clients as much as clients can execute commands on servers. So the fun thing is that you can very easily do a direct mapping of an HTTP and JSON API like Matrix through to a co-app and Seabor API. And Seabor is constrained um, uh, bitwise object or representational, no, constrained binary object representation. And it's basically bit packed um, JSON or something very similar to JSON, but bit packed. So between the two, um, you easily get a factor of six to 10 improvement over HTTP and um, HTTPS and JSON. And you can actually do even better than that. For instance, um, it has an observe feature, which is a little bit like server-side push in HTTP 2 and 3, which um, allows the server to just chuck packets of data through to the client. So we can use that for sync. Um, also, we can further binary pack down the URLs. So we can like map the big textual HTTP URIs through to little binary things, uh, which you can use in co-app. Um, but basically, we express it as a mapping of how you take the existing matrix protocol and just squidge it down as much as possible. It ends up being about 10x more bandwidth efficient and using DTLS rather than TLS, which, um, again, for TTLS 1.3 ends up being um, a fraction of the overhead of a big, chunky, typical TLS um, setup. The... Interesting news, though, is that we can go even further. And in fact, we did go further than this a few years ago. Um, and we call this ultra-low bandwidth matrix, which is up to 70 times more efficient than HTTPS and JSON. But it does so by really starting to cut corners. We no longer use DTLS. We use a noise-based end-to-end um, -end encryption um, transport layer security, which is what uh, was actually written by the Signal team and used in Signal and then WhatsApp. Uh, it's a bit risky, though, because it's basically inventing your own transport layer encryption rather than using TLS, which should start, should start sounding alarm bells for people. Also, you can do things like um, pre-exchange um, dictionaries for compression data so that if you know the sort of things which people talk about um, in the rooms in terms of either the metadata or the unencrypted data, then you can train the various people on the network to already be pre-compressing using the sort of optimal um, deflate dictionaries, which is a very cheeky trick, but also very, very flimsy from a protocol perspective. Now, imagine a RFC that included a 100 kilobyte bunch of binary at the end and says, this is the magic pre-shared deflate dictionary that the clients will have to use in order to understand the protocol. It would be horrific. It would be laughed out of town. And finally, you can cut a lot of corners if it's a private federation and um, if you don't need to support IP addresses and you can instead give all the host names like a number between 1 and 400 or however many hosts you have on the network, then that's an easy way to like cut down a whole bunch more data there. So if you pull out all the stops and you're on a private network, you can get it down to like almost 100 times better than typical matrix today. But our MSC 3079, which is the one that we released um, an implementation of at least last week or this week, just gone, um, is using Seabor, Co-App, DTLS. So it's all off-the-shelf IETF RFCs, no voodoo, but it actually is still roughly 10x improvement. And we're really looking forward to putting that into Android and seeing 10 times the battery life.
you, uh, you've mentioned spaces a couple of times and with Synapse 134 spaces is on now by default. So if you have a Synapse server running 134, um, or I guess later, then you're, then you're going to be able to take advantage of this. Talk a little bit about what spaces are and how they differed from communities. Sure. Um, so communities, um, uh, well, it was a very unfortunate adventure and experiment from 2017, where we had actually lost all of our funding to work on Matrix briefly, and had to rapidly do some science fiction to kind of inspire people with what Matrix could be, if they went to gave us lots of money that we could keep the team together and keep growing. And um, honestly, it was designed in a massive rush. And we added all these APIs to Matrix that described how communities would work as a way to group together rooms and users, a bit like a Discord server or a Slack workspace. And it worked enough, just about, um, that we left it like it for a few years. But then about six months ago, or a bit longer now, we started considering a complete rethink where instead of having a custom thing called communities, why not just use rooms to express um, a space, um, a set of users and a set of rooms? Because rooms themselves already have basically all the primitives you need. You've got a name, you've got a topic, you've got an avatar, you've got members, you can invite them, you can kick them, some of their admins, some of their ops, you can invite them by email, you can do all these obvious things which you want to do frankly, with a space like a set of users and rooms as much as you might want to do in a room itself. So we basically had the revelation that um, you could use um, uh, rooms to represent collections of rooms, and that's what spaces is. And as a result, you get hierarchies um, out of the box too, and you can create arbitrarily large multiplayer hierarchies not even looked after by yourself. It could be curated by other organizations and you can glue them into bigger trees yourselves. And before you know it, you've basically got something a bit like Usenet where you can create an arbitrary hierarchy like, I don't know, comp.sys.sgi.hardware or whatever Usenet newsgroup you might have been into back in the day, except do it as a nested hierarchy of matrix chat rooms. And those rooms themselves don't necessarily need to contain chat. They could contain video conferences, they could contain files, they could contain widgets, which are the um, embedded web apps which we support in Matrix. It could be IoT data, it could be reputation data, it could be threads, it could be a message board, it could be anything. So basically spaces have ended up being the slightly unexpected, almost fundamental building block going forwards, I think, of Matrix as the skeleton, the hierarchy about which you can um, structure all of the information out there on the network. Matthew Hodgson, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. You know, you always have an invitation on my program anytime you want it. Uh, if you're, if you have a couple of more minutes, I know we kept you a little longer, but if, if you have a couple more minutes, I'll open up the, the room for additional questions. Otherwise, I can probably take uh, one more. Otherwise, okay. my wife is going to kill me. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so uh, I'll let um, the gentleman who wanted to talk about the SIP stuff. You're you're on with Matthew. Hi there. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, at our company, uh, we would love an option to be able to, uh, you know, pay, let's say pay for the EMS service. And then as part of that, maybe add another fee to be able to use a, a SIPS, uh, use your client as a SIPS off phone. Is that sort of what you were talking yep. about before that would potentially be available? Absolutely. So if the EMS offering is literally turning element into a full SIPS off phone, complete with line one, line two, core transfer, 
core hold um, and all the bells and whistles that you'd expect from a proper classic call center style um, um, SIP software. And um, the, it does that by, first of all, using matrix signaling, obviously, um, from element through to the matrix to SIP gateway. But then the matrix SIP gateway itself is this proprietary thing currently um, sitting inside EMS, which will then go and provide a SIP um, endpoint that you can register either into your existing PBX or you can probably get the PBX to register to it. This is slightly vaporware. We have the gateway. It works, but we haven't productized it in EMS yet. But that is the plan in the coming weeks. And in fact, I had a big pricing workshop to figure out what we charge people for it on Friday. So that's kind of the point that we're at in the process. But we have had a lot of people ask for this, particularly um, people who've been using Skype for business and are used to the sort of PBX integrations there, or people who just really like Matrix, but also happen to have their asterisk, or they have their free switch, or their Avaya, or Broadcom, or whatever their funky PBX might be. Matthew Hodgson, the technical co-founder of Matrix.org. Learn more at Matrix.org, or go sign up for an EMS plan today at Element.io. Plans start at just $2. Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the program. We'll get you back real soon. And that will bring us to the end of the episode. The music in my ears means we're out of time. Hey, thank you so much for showing up to listen to the Ask Noah Show. We record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us at AskNoahShow.com. Make sure to check out the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. That's where we document all of the references and resources we use to make the show. We'll see you back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.